0: Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is Sally Sedgwick, Liberal Arts and Sciences Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Affiliated Professor of Germanic Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And she's here to talk with us about Hegel's critique of Kant. Sally Sedgwick, welcome. Hello there. So the philosopher Immanuel Kant's moral philosophy And it departs from this distinction between a formal and an empirical theory of ethics. So what does Kant mean by that exactly? What's the difference?
1: Well, I'll just talk about Kant's case, because that's the one that I know best. So a formal theory, obviously, is going to have some formal elements. And in Kant's case, the supreme law of morality is, he would say, formal. And what that means for him is that it derives from pure reason versus deriving from experience, meaning our observation of human behaviors and human desires. The law for Kant has its origin in pure reason and is therefore formal. So the supreme moral principle for Kant is formal in this respect. And then I would add that the subject who is responsible for this law, that is the rational person, the rational self, is formal in a certain respect as well in that Kant says that the law derives from that part of ourselves which is capable of stepping outside time essentially so he's committed to the view that each of us as a rational agent has a very special kind of freedom and it is a freedom to initiate a causal series from a standpoint that is outside time so the moral law itself is formal has its origin and reason. And human agents have this formal aspect on his view, namely, we are capable of this very special kind of causal power. I should add that Kant doesn't think that we can know that we have this kind of agency, but he thinks that we have to think of ourselves as having this kind of agency if morality is to be possible.
0: So the point of saying that the most basic moral principle is formal rather than empirical, is to say that it's not like you know we were born and then we had a bunch of experience growing up in the world and then we like learned from our experience or something that this is the most basic moral law. Uh, it's more like it was built somehow into our faculty of reasoning in the first place. Um,
1: sort of like an innate idea. Something like, uh, I think it's fair to say that Kant is in certain respects an innatist, that he thinks that we do have ideas or concepts that are in us already, independent of any experience. And because those ideas are independent of experience, they have a validity that sort of transcends the different experiences of different peoples. So it's precisely because the Supreme Law of Morality is a priori, that it's not just valid for some persons and not others, or some cultures are not others, some historical periods, but not others precisely because it is a law of human reason its validity extends to all rational natures including all rational human natures
0: that's interesting so then i guess maybe part of the point here is that in order for the most fundamental moral principle to like objectively hold and for the same one to hold of all different people who have all different experiences it has to be independent of experience seems like maybe there's a connection being drawn there
1: there's definitely a connection i mean Kant I think he's looking for a principle that has this very special kind of validity. Again, it's not just valid for some people but not others, you know, white people but not blacks, men but not women, Christians but not, not Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. But it has this very special status of being universally and necessarily valid, as he puts it. And the only way it could possibly have that kind of status is for its origin to be something other than human experience it's got which is very diverse on his account so its origin has to be in some faculty that we all share in common regardless of our skin color or what culture we're born into and so forth and that's pure reason
0: and what did Kant think this most basic moral principle underlying all of our moral reasoning was
1: well he gives different formulations of it and some of them are really kind of bizarre sounding and hard to understand but I think the most intuitively accessible formulation goes something like this or this is a formulation that I give to my undergraduates. Um, Basically it's commanding each and every one of us to respect the dignity of all rational nature. So then you might ask well that sounds pretty good but what does he mean by dignity? We'd need more information about that. And there I'd want to say for him each of us has a dignity by virtue of the fact that we have this very special capacity of freedom that distinguishes us from other creatures we're able to give ourselves law to as i said a minute ago initiate a causal series from the standpoint outside time and that means to some in some respect rise above the laws of nature although of course we are also natural beings we inhabit nature and we're determined by laws of nature but in our thinking he's claiming there's a sense in which we can transcend all that, rise above all that, and give ourselves law, give ourselves this command, which says essentially to respect this very feature of ourselves, this amazing ability we have to, to some extent, in some way, exempt ourselves, you might say, from laws of nature.
2: So how does Kant think that we come to know this? This is a formal law, it's not something we derive from experience, but of course, we have to have experience to know anything. So mm-hmm. what, what exactly is formal about this rather than influenced by empirical features?
1: Well, are you asking me what's formal about the process in which we come yeah. to know it? Yeah. I think very little. It's interesting that in one of his main texts, the Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals, there's a passage where he alludes to Socrates. And he alludes to the Mino dialogue, where Socrates is trying to demonstrate that essentially all knowledge is recollection. So Socrates interviews an ignorant slave boy who's never learned anything about the laws of geometry. And Socrates draws a few lines in the sand and asks the slave boy a few questions about the geometrical properties of the object. And the slave boy is able to answer the questions correctly, even though this person has never had a class in geometry. And it's interesting to me that Kant alludes to this passage from the Mino in his groundwork because I think he's telling us something about how he understands our coming to know the moral law as well, that it is innate in us. We have it already, but that certainly doesn't mean that we're aware of it from the start. So he admits that education, teachers, social institutions have an essential role to play in drawing our attention to it and actually awakening us to the fact that we have this law in ourselves. So it's not that we just sort of automatically one morning wake up and realize, oh, I know, I should obey the command to respect the dignity of all rational nature. That doesn't happen. But rather, social institutions do play a really crucial role in getting us to see what we ought to do. He thinks that, you know, we all know the difference between right and wrong and good and bad. But sometimes we need a little help getting ourselves to recognize it. But deep down, we all know it.
0: So this basic moral principle that Kant thought underlies all of our ethical reasoning and behavior, it's very abstract. And that's actually kind of the point of what we've been saying. You know, It has to be very abstract to be universal and objectively and hold objectively for everybody. But how do you get from this very abstract principle of always respect the dignity of other rational beings to, you know, the more mundane kind of ethical dilemmas we face in everyday life. How does that principle, for example, allow me to know that I shouldn't cheat on my girlfriend or something?
1: Right. Well, you know, often what people say when they advise people not to cheat on their partners is something like that. You know, it's really a bad long-term strategy because, you know, he or she might in the end find out and that's going to make life really harder for you in the long term. So it's kind of not in your self-interest to cheat, really. It's not a good strategy. I mean, Kant's reasoning is going to be different than that. Yes, so how does it violate the dignity of my partner when I withhold the truth or, or flatly lie? Well, I said a minute ago that each of us has a dignity, according to Kant, because of this capacity we each have to be free. And, you know, if you ask, what are the conditions that have to be in place for me to express my freedom? There's going to be a long list of things, but one of the things there is I need to live in a world in which I can trust other people. So my ability to express my freedom, to make choices about how to lead my life, require me to be able to trust those closest to me, to live in a culture where I can generally trust others. So in short, a world without trust is one that, makes it much more difficult for me to express my freedom. Something like that, I think, is the, the analysis.
2: So as you've been describing Kant, and as many of his critics have charged him with, this formal aspect of Kant seems perhaps too formal. There's a question of what it actually has to do with Living human beings in particularly challenging situations. So, is this formal charge against Kant right? And is this all there is mm-hmm. to Kant? Is, is the formal aspect yeah. of Kant's ethics, yeah. is that the whole of Kant's ethics?
1: I think the formalism charge is right insofar as it's just unquestionably his view that the law itself is formal in the way that I earlier described. It derives from not sort of a naturalized or empiricized human reason but what he calls pure reason and the agent who is free also is, has his capacity to rise above nature so those aspects of his view I think are not eliminable without doing some real serious damage to his position but that doesn't mean that there are not any empirical elements you know in his practical philosophy his moral theory he fully recognizes that he's dealing with flesh and blood human beings who have you know physical desires and needs and who live in history live in a concrete world and with specific situations and when it comes time to then apply that formal moral law to particular cases he to no extent discourages us from paying attention to the empirical particularities of the cases that we're analyzing. So even though he his own discussion of various applications of the law tend to be kind of abstract sounding, I think it's fully compatible with his theory to say that he intends us to be able to apply that formal law to real life, highly specific problems that we do so adequately only when we are good empiricists. That is, that we are sensitive to the empirical specifics, to the contingent specifics of the particular case. I don't think there's any evidence to say that Kant is urging us to be abstract in our applications of the supreme moral law, which he calls the categorical imperative. But at the same time, the categorical imperative or the supreme moral law itself, there's nothing empirical. Well, almost nothing. But there's... It's formal in the way that I've described is derived. I say there's no, almost nothing empirical because there's this little wrinkle. The moral law, again, respect the dignity of all rational nature, that's a command, right? And he says, you know, if you and I were holy wills and not the flesh and blood human, merely all too human creatures that we are, we wouldn't need to be commanded in morality at all if we were holy wills or perfect wills we would just sort of automatically do what's right and what's good. So the fact that the moral law, the formal moral law, is formulated as a command is already a bit of a concession to the fact that he knows he's dealing with humans and not with holy wills.
0: So the, the German idealist philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel had a different approach to ethics, which departed in many respects from this sort of principle of Kant's that the most basic moral law needs to be formal rather than empirical in the ways we just discussed. So what were some of Hegel's worries about this Kantian outlook we've been describing?
1: Well, a quick way of answering that is to say I think Hegel thought that Kant's view was sort of a mythology. That is, that there could be really purely formal laws is something that Hegel has doubts about. And likewise, that there could be a part of myself that is capable of standing outside nature, transcending time, or that we could even have an idea of such a self, an idea that owed nothing for its meaning, for its content to history. Hegel has doubts about these assumptions, and he expresses his doubts by suggesting that Kant's efforts to convince us that the moral law is formal are really not Convincing, And let me try to say a little bit about why we might think Hegel is right about this. So if the moral law is commanding that we respect the dignity of all rational natures, as I said a minute ago, well, we then want to know what human dignity consists in. Kant's answer is we each have a dignity to the extent that we possess this faculty of freedom or what he calls practical reason. And that all sounds okay. I mean, you know, we probably all think of ourselves as rational natures, and we all like to think of ourselves as having a dignity, certainly. Um, But it's really when you press the details of this picture that you start to wonder whether it's as universally and necessarily valid as Kant claims that it is. As I said a minute ago, the conception of freedom upon which the whole system rests attributes to us the ability to initiate a causal series from a standpoint outside time. And I think a lot of philosophers don't buy that conception of human freedom. They don't think it's very realistic. And as I said a minute ago, I think Hegel has trouble even with the very idea that this conception of freedom sort of captures something that's universally and necessarily true about us versus capturing a particular conception of freedom that's born out of a particular historical period that very much demonstrates Kant's very particular philosophical heritage, his debt to Leibniz, his debt to Plato. And Hegel's view is that human freedom through the course of history means a lot of different things. And he's really skeptical, I think, of the very suggestion that any idea we have could be generated from a standpoint outside history. So he thinks that all thinking is in history. There's a famous passage in the preface to the philosophy of right where he says, no thinker can overleap his time. Philosophy is its own time comprehended in thoughts. And I think that those lines are really crucial Hegelian commitments. So in raising questions about formalism, including Kant's formalism, He's really challenging the particular idea of what human thinking is and can be. He has deep doubts about the suggesting that it can ever be fully, you might say abstract, that we can ever fully abstract from where we are in a particular intellectual culture.
2: So to say that freedom means different things in different periods of time could sound like it's a skeptical claim. It could sound like the claim to the Greeks it meant one thing, Mm -hmm. to Kant it meant another, but in the skeptical charge, in reality it's never been any such thing. But Hegel's not a skeptic like this. So could you say something about why Hegel is not a skeptic Mm -hmm. about something as Mm -hmm. important as freedom?
1: Well, I'm not quite sure I understand what you mean by a skeptic here. I mean, it is the case that he thinks that there have been different conceptions of freedom through history. Maybe what you're pointing to is his sort of optimism about the general progress of human history and progress in the development of human freedom. It is Hegel's view that, you know, we're in a better place as far as freedom is concerned, and by that I mean as far as the thinking about freedom is concerned, than, say, the ancients were, if only because, at least on his construal, we all take for granted now that Every human has the capacity of freedom, not merely some humans, not merely those who happen to have the right parents or, you know, be born into the right culture but or have the right color skin or whatever, but every human. And I think most of us would agree that that seems like, you know, a good instance of human progress. Is that what you mean in suggesting that he's not a skeptic, that he thinks that there's progress in our thinking about freedom?
2: Yeah. Um... It seems potentially skeptical to say that freedom has meant different things in different periods where you you might have an error Mm -hmm. theory about these sort of things. You might think they were conceived of in different ways. Kant thought freedom was to be able to step outside the causal Mm -hmm. order and initiate a cause from outside. But that's fantasy. You might think that's, Mm -hmm. and and you might think every conception of freedom was similarly a different sort of fantasy Mm So it's tricky to try to understand exactly what Hegel means. That he wants to redeem something from these periods, or he wants Mm -hmm. to preserve a space for freedom, even though he's historicizing. Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, maybe you're asking the questions about how does he ground his thesis of progress, such that he's able to say, you know, from our point of view, the Greeks' their conception of freedom was deficient in certain ways, and ours is better, because he indeed makes claims like that. But I think, although this is controversial, I see him as really basing all of his claims in history. His view is that the evidence for the thesis of progress can only be historical. I mean, that's all we've got, right? It's not that he's saying that he just retreats to his study and closes the rest of the world out and thinks really hard, right, and comes up with this thesis. Nor is it his view that he consults intuition or leaves the realm of shadows and appearances and ascends from the cave and intuits the good, you know. His view is the only evidence we could have for the claim of progress is going to be historical evidence. And, you know, that's the best we can do. And that, that's all we've got. So that seems to me only to commit him to skepticism if you think that there's a better form of evidence out there. I should say, the thesis of progress he doesn't assume is his private property, right? That is the ultimate judge of the fate of human history is history itself. It's not some particular historian, but, you know, you think of history as a cultural product. And that means, I think there's going to be disagreement about how we outline the course of history. And I think he's more comfortable with that than other people give him credit for. I think his view is. The story of human history and the development of freedom, insofar as we continue thinking and reflecting on these matters, the story is going to continue to be rewritten and revised. And that seems to leave open the possibility that even his story might be someday rewritten and revised.
0: So I guess uh, off the top of my head, I'm kind of siding with Hegel here, but maybe that's just because it seems like there's something unintuitive about saying that when we do things, we somehow stand outside of time. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I decide I want to make some eggs, um, that happens at a time, right? I mean, it's not like it happened mm-hmm. before the beginning of the Big Bang or something. So maybe, yeah, what exactly did Kant mean by this idea that human action sort of has this origin outside of time? And surely it was more plausible than what I'm <laughs> the thesis I'm ascribing to him now. <laughs>
1: Look, he's thinking very much within a Newtonian framework, and his view is if we're stuck thinking about human nature solely as Newton did, that is, that we are creatures belonging to a realm of nature and determined in everything we do by laws over which we have zero control, then the project of grounding moral norms, practical commands, is hopeless. Why? Because if I'm programmed to do everything that I do and think, then it doesn't make sense for you to tell me you ought not to have done that, right? It doesn't make sense to hold me responsible for anything that I've done. So Kant thinks, well, you know, if the Newtonian framework, this deterministic picture, is all we've got, then we're really in trouble. But it's it can't possibly be all that we've got because it's just a fact that human beings do hold themselves and others responsible for what they do, at least in some, not all cases, there's certain behaviors over which I indeed have no control, knee-jerk reactions and so forth. He's not denying that we are animals and that we are natural creatures, highly sophisticated animals. It's just his argument is, look, we do hold ourselves responsible. We do say of ourselves, you've done something right, you've done something wrong, and we make judgments about others as well and we can only ground or provide a philosophical basis for that picture of ourselves if we postulate the possibility that we can again in some sense obey a set of laws that are outside nature that we give ourselves as creatures capable of rising above nature so that's the basic sort of motivation for the position he's saying that the very possibility of practical philosophy of Moral imputation depends on this idea of an alternative form of causality, a non-natural form of causality.
2: So did Hegel, in rejecting Kant's claim that we had the ability to step outside of nature, did he thereby accept the Newtonian determinism, or (laughs) did he have some third way available?
1: It has to be for Hegel a sort of freedom within nature, and what does he say about human freedom? It, it really sounds pretty kind of benign and commonsensical that we have freedom thanks to the fact that we are thinking beings. He, by the way, you know, doesn't think that other animals think. They react, they have desires, they want stuff, but they don't think. They're not capable of making the object of their desire into an object of reflection the way we are. So we have freedom thanks to the fact that we have this capacity of thought, plus, the desire to translate our thoughts into action, to externalize our thoughts, to express our thoughts via action. That's what freedom consists in for Hegel. And I mean, one thing you can say about that is, he's certainly not saying our freedom consists in this ability to step outside time. So that's why I'd say it's a more, much more mundane, benign sounding version.
0: So it would it be fair to think of what Hegel is doing as maybe just sort of rejecting the problem the way that Kant sets it up. So whereas Kant wants to say, look, I can't reject this scientific deterministic Mm -hmm. worldview. That's just, Mm -hmm. there's too much strong evidence for that. And I also can't reject the idea that people are free. Like those are just two very basic data. So I'm going to have to bite the bullet and say that the things people do exist somehow outside of the laws of nature or supernaturally or however you want to think of that. Mm -hmm. And then Hegel's response at least is going to be well there's wait a minute that's biting that bullet is more absurd than either the two things we've said so far we can't leave the problem standing there we have to find some way not to be pressed to Kant's conclusion
1: that's right and so you know he's not going to go transcendental or transcendent or however you want to put it he's also not going to fall back strictly speaking on the Newtonian picture because he thinks it suffers from certain mythologies as well
0: So Hegel urged us to have what we're calling this kind of historicized picture of ethics, which I guess we can think of as, you know, a desire to see each ethical framework sort of in its historical context as influenced by the various philosophical theories that came before it. So that, you know, we look at these views about what the ultimate good is or isn't as evolving in response to what came before. If we were to adopt this sort of historicized position, in ethics, do you think that has broader implications for how philosophy is done right now?
1: I do because, I mean, you can think of Hegel as urging us to take the history of philosophy seriously. Obviously, I'm a historian of philosophy, so I like that position. (laughs) Um, But I think he thinks that thinkers and philosophers suffer sometimes from a kind of hubris in thinking that they can escape the determinations of their time. You know, there's a sort of um, picture of what objective thinking is or good reasoning. A good picture, an important picture, where we try to stand apart from our prejudices and put them aside and and reflect impartially on matters. I'm not suggesting that he thinks that we should dispense with that conception of what good reasoning looks like, but I think he he would suggest that there's a bit of hubris involved when we really think that we can completely perform those acts of abstraction and that philosophers tend to be guilty of this, for example, when they think that their own ideas, their own theories, so contemporary philosophers, their own ideas and theories come from nothing but their pure thinking and owe nothing to the particular historical intellectual climate in which they are working. And I think Hegel rightly suggests that that is simply a myth, that we're attributing greater powers of abstraction to ourselves than we possibly can have, and that it's a dangerous view as well, because you can really convince yourself that you have laid bare all of your assumptions. And I think if you take Hegel's view about the historical nature of reason seriously, then. It really isn't possible for any of us to wholly lay bare all of our assumptions. But the good thing about studying history of philosophy is that if you get into another world and you move around into that that other world a little bit intellectually, then you give yourself some tools for looking at your own assumptions more critically. And seeing that, oh, so there were other ways of thinking about freedom oh, there were other ways of thinking about what human rationality consists in. Oh, there were other conceptions of objectivity than the one that I happen to be relying upon. And that that is an extremely useful lesson.
0: Sally Sedgwick, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you both for inviting me. I enjoyed it.
0: If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at Pod. And as always you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.